Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. If there's one thing I know, Flora, it's morality. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we last talked about the online magazine Eon when they published their argument for forced baby swapping to end racism. Now they've just come out with a piece called Why Having Pets is Fundamentally Unethical. Are they just trolling me now? I haven't. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. I, ha- I haven't seen that piece, but it is... It is like they got into your diary and read all of the portions that say, Dear Diary, I really love. <laughs> what is their argument for, for having pets being unethical? I don't, I don't know. Because I'm not, you, I'm you trying to um, not get trolled. Like, I, I, I clicked on it. It really is. I think Eon is in clickbait for, for philosophers right now. But you it know, really is unbelievable. Uh, like, what would they do to you to troll you like they're trolling me? That's a good question. Um, like, they would probably like an article on why Tupac is the most overrated rapper. Right. That has that's the level at which like I just get angry. I don't because there's no there's no like position that I hold intellectually that I care so much about. You know that like I would be really mad. Um, in a way that I would be if people said like you know Jay Dilla the producer has never made any good music you know like and then I'd just be like you're just fucking ignorant and like what about <laughs> why disgust is the most moral emotion <laughs> <It's the> most... <laughs> you know it sounds interesting yeah like it could be could be that's how science proceeds <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> speaking of uh, how science perceives and so let's just actually say what we're going to uh, talk right. about today the main topic if we get to it is is going to be in general the is ought gap the naturalistic fallacy um, yeah I, I think this is something that's come up as sort of assumed background information on the part of our listeners but we've never talked about it in a systematic way certainly and kind of gone through the different formulations of the is ought gap and the naturalistic fallacy as far as i know we haven't I've had people tell me this before and people have emailed us, but I just had a student, um, who, uh, an undergrad who listens to our podcasts, who is, who works with me, Amdiel, shout out. It was interesting because he's not a philosopher at all and he's taken to listening to the podcast and he was, it, at some point he's like, can I ask you a question? What the hell is a Kantian? And I realized that like, you know, one of the nice things about growing in our listenership is 
is that we get people from all kinds of backgrounds. And so sometimes I, I think part of the reason that we got so much feedback about the Neil deGrasse Tyson discussion is that we, we might have assumed a certain kind of agreement about, about something like the naturalistic fallacy. And it's worth it to, to actually describe what we meant. Yeah. So let's talk about the feedback first, because um, I think we were both genuinely surprised by it. You know, like some sometimes I sort of expect like after the sort of gender toys thing, I knew that I would get slammed and you would get like hoisted up like some, they were doing the horror. That should be a heuristic place. that you're that you're that I'm right. <laughs> like if you can predict that <laughs> um, with the Sam Harris stuff, I knew we were going to get a bunch of Sam Harris acolytes slamming us on twitter and facebook i didn't i wouldn't have thought that this our our discussion of the neil degrasse tyson rationalia just because it seemed like there was sort of unanimous kind of consensus it was like a consensus about but 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 we were wrong like we actually got probably about as much flack for that as we've ever gotten yeah, I think it's the the most like not just disagreeing emails, but like you guys just like fucking suck emails because I don't even I don't even think we got that for the Sam Harris episodes, which we did. I mean, we never. No, I think we well, maybe, did, but they weren't from re- regular listeners. This was from regular listeners, like right, people who have right, listened right, to right. us and actually like the podcast. And I think our attitude is always like, we'll take it seriously. That's why we're actually talking about it this yeah. time. Like, what, what, what happened? So you want to go? <laughs> what, what happened? What's that? What happened? What? What happened? <laughs> All right. So let's um, let's go through. You've compiled representative. Yeah, samples. I have a I have a few. So I have some representative ones. We actually just got one this morning. Um, there were there were a couple of style of comments, but like I, I'd say the one of them was essentially saying. Um, that we misrepresented, that we straw manned, or that we were too quick to dismiss, often pointing to the irony of us discussing, like, uh, you know, other people's dismissal, <laughs> like Neil deGrasse Tyson's dismissal. Yeah. Harmony said, I was really surprised by your response to NDT. A very intelligent and respected person proposes the idea that we should have a country based on rationality, and you felt that deserved to be mocked. And you criticize him for not defining good. It's a Facebook post, not a scientific paper or book. Uh, you, pretis- you criticize him for putting inappropriate statements into the Constitution. His Facebook post is not a Constitution. You just read it wrong. You criticize him because you think his pers- proposal would result in creepy experiments in a Vulcan society. Uh, I guess you think the medical community is Vulcan-like. So that that's another person. Gabriel said, given that we agree with him on other stuff and think he's brilliant, let's exhaust all possibilities before we dismiss him, right? Ironically, perhaps the smugness you find off-putting with DeGrasse Tyson's rationalist Crony Club may be the long-lost sibling, sibling of the smugness of casually dismissing ideas one finds unsavory. I, I will say that we got enough emails accusing us of smugness that I'm prepared to admit that we might have been a little bit <laughs> smug. Uh, as I, I told you, like if it walks like a smug duck, talks like a smug <laughs> duck, maybe it just is a smug duck. So, so we might have been a little smug. I mean, look, it's... That's a, it's <laughs> yeah. a podcast, you know, like this I, I kind of that, what we do. The, the, the funny thing is that I think we've been perhaps more smug and more dismissive and even more mean. I, I mean, I try not to be mean, but um, for many other people. Um, yeah. But Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think what we learn is he has a very, very devoted following. Um, and so for, Ronald says, I thought this was one of your worst episodes. 
even though it was one of my favorite papers on the topic of rationality, is actually fascinating. But you guys just shrugged it off as a straw man. Let's talk about this straw man accusation. Cause that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, we can disagree. And here's what, like, maybe just get this out of the way. There is nothing wrong with disagreeing with Neil deGrasse Tyson. We both went out of our way to say we liked him and respected him. Shit, I'm still a fan. And I just think that he's wrong. And I'm like this close to actually writing a post about this. So maybe, maybe I will. But we're, we're allowed to disagree. And I think that if we didn't communicate a substantive disagreement, that's just because we got caught up in the in this, maybe assuming that everybody saw that what we thought we saw, which was this is obviously insane. But one thing that I think that even with the laughter we didn't do was put words in his mouth. No. Or change his position. Of course, it was a Facebook post. Of course, it's not a real constitution. Like I don't think but he refers to <laughs> like, it as a constitution. Yeah, yeah. In in the same spirit, we're referring to it as what he's referring right. to as a constitution. We also read probably 90, 80, 80 to ninety percent of the entire post. So it's hard to Verbatim. straw man somebody when you're just quoting pretty much everything and, he said directly. And if you guys even have listened, you know how difficult it is for to read on the podcast. So that was like a lot of work put into that. <laughs> the reading. Yes. <laughs> the reading. We should be <laughs> lauded. Then one other thing I'll say is that, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson is, the way I see it is that we were like, you know, maybe taking shots that like, if we were lucky, would reach his toes because he's like, yeah. If he ever stooped down to coming onto our show, I actually think it would be fun. And I think that Sam Harris is a great example of somebody who not only didn't actually care that we had a mocking tone for some of the discussion, he he brought it and turned it into a serious conversation. Yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson is welcome to come on this podcast to defend <laughs> rationalia anytime he wants. I mean, that would be yeah. uh, that would be awesome. I I I don't think there's any chance he would do it, but he is absolutely welcome. Did you, I don't know if you're planning to read a little bit of, of Brendan Strait. Uh, yeah. The one, the one that we just got today. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually replied to Brendan and I said that we were talking. So. <laughs> Can I read <laughs> the beginning? You go for it. I shed a tear for a world in which. Well, first of all, I said, I'm a huge fan of your show. Please forgive me. Yes. Which so, is great. Like, we always love that. Which we is always great. appreciate that. You don't need to say that, but we always appreciate yeah. when you do. Um, I, sh- I shed a tear for a world in which overreaction to an astrophysicist tweet constitutes journalism. Why is it that allegedly serious writers find it necessary to sit saddled atop their towering stallions, waiting for people more intelligent than them to slip up on social media? I guess he's probably not talking about us there because we didn't do it for the tweet, right? No, um, and we didn't and write it, anything. And it's not a sl- and <clears throat> and a long thought piece outlining the various points you want to make. It's not a slip up on social media. Although then that's he says, just... "And I'm only a tad more forgiving of a philosopher and a Kantian." <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Who wish yeah. to spend thirty minutes discussing it on their podcast? Again, it's not just the tweet. In fact, we had a chance to discuss the tweet, and we and we and we actually made an explicit choice not to for exactly the reason. What right. we were talking about is the Facebook post where he kind of uh, doubles down. So. Then he goes into all the different ways that he thinks we misrepresented. Yeah. So, it. right, and and so so I think it's worth talking at least about some things yeah. that I think uh, we d- 
did did not at least intend to say, or I think in some cases never said. There is a way in which, like, as sort of liberal science-minded people, of course we want there to be more science and it to be valued and for people, you know, to like, like we, but I feel like we said this yeah. over and over and over again. And so some of the, the responses that we got that were disagreeing with us were along the lines of, I can't believe you would disagree with such a good idea to make society based more on science. That's not at all or what to I take evidence with. into social policy, like, or to take evidence more into social into, policy. That's yeah. If Neil deGrasse Tyson wants to encourage this kind of thing, then I think he went about it the wrong way. And I think that, in fact, it's more damaging to dismiss substantive disagreements about policy, in particular ones about values, as just one group of people being dense about science. And, and I, I think that he was being hand-wavy by saying, that there is a scientific answer and people are essentially like, we're going to have to start a new virtual country because people in this country clearly aren't getting how obvious the answer is. Let's do it like science. Yeah. Certainly what we weren't saying was that all voters are currently perfectly informed about the facts or that policies shouldn't take evidence into account to a greater extent than they do right now. Yes, voters are poorly informed, us among them often. I don't think there's possible to be to be I mean this is part of the problem with the whole rationalia idea is that it's fundamentally anti-democratic. There's no way it could fit within a democratic society because voters are not perfectly informed about the facts. But then there's the second deeper issue which we'll talk about more in this the next topic which is that there are going to be certain questions, and maybe the death penalty is one of them, where the evidence is one consideration, but it can't determine whether the policy is something you want to institute or not, because a fundamental level, there's just a disagreement about about value. Yeah, And so whether the death penalty is a deterrent or not— Unless you're one of these people, and very few death penalty proponents are like this, right, who think that the only reason you should have the death penalty is because it's a valuable deterrent of murder. Now, there's very few people who defend the death penalty who, who that's, that, that's their position, right? The, right? They just think it's like the just right thing to do. And then I think very few death penalty opponents— would be would think oh no but we should just have it if it provided a little bit of deterrence for for murder right like they're more deontological like you about it and just saying it's not the business of the state to put people to death the debate between those two people is not one that that's solved by evidence it's not, that's it's not going to dis- be resolved but yeah, right it's a disagreement exactly. and 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 i think that by just jumping up and saying that it's obvious that we just need to do a study it is condescending to the people who are disagreeing because you're accusing them of a kind of ignorance that is not what's driving the disagreement at all. And right. it may very well be that they are ignorant about science, but that is not what's driving their particular position. And, and moreover, because Neil deGrasse Tyson is smart, I think that he ought to have thought this particular set of arguments out a bit more. And this is where I will defend philosophy and the analysis of what it means 
to say that some something that some state of the world is better when people are happier there's a lot of thought real careful thought that has to go into what that means and right yeah and so that's just something we'll talk about d- when we get into the yeah, naturalistic exactly. fallacy for the but, in the second part of the episode but yes absolutely what i want to say to some people but here i know how the conversation will go but i i, I want to say like look garish public execution might actually be a really really good deterrent yeah and um and i think that most people who would be the sort of people who like Neil deGrasse Tyson and would defend the idea of rationality would think is barbaric. And so the question is, well, what, why do you think it's barbaric? What if we did the study and showed that murder went down? And my hunch is that they would backtrack a little bit and say, but society would be worse off because people would be like in fear. Okay, now you've gone one step further than Neil deGrasse Tyson went in defending his constitution. And that is the kind of discussion that has to start if you're if you're going to defend a view like he's defending the debate over the death penalty it's such a poor example actually because i think you can find examples of policies where the facts really would make a big difference of course you know? yeah and that's part of the job right which yeah. is to distinguish those for which it does and those for which it doesn't so like education yeah, policy or charter schools or now there's certain people who just have core beliefs that you know the facts aren't going to sway them because of some core value but i don't think anybody has a really strong opinion about like whether we should have charter schools or not it's, it's just a question of you know to what extent uh, these schools benefit people and which people do they benefit and how disproportionately and, and you know when he was saying you want to encourage arts and schools let's see if it makes a difference well it matters what you mean by that like it really does matter and so you you can't just state that it's an obvious solution just see if it makes society better because <laughs> i mean i'm how repeating myself define, right <laughs> we're just saying what we said last time but yeah yeah, yeah. But uh, but this time, like, yeah. let's take it seriously. We got enough people who want us to take this seriously, so we'll fucking take it seriously. Finally, last thing about the thing of smugness, it's not a... The, the piece itself has plenty of smugness, right? But I will say yeah. that, you know, lumping him in with the new atheists might have been unfair. So uh, uh, Brendan ends um, toward the end, he says... The thing that pissed me off the most was your disgust at the smugness you found in him. You caveat some of your comments with declarations of admiration and respect, and yet you've conveniently imposed the archetype of a smug elitist academic upon him for the purpose of, quote-unquote, critiquing a tweet and a Facebook post. You've ignored his very public history of friendliness, humor, and diplomacy. And I actually think that part of what was going on in my mind when we were critiquing him was exactly this. He's a public figure. He seems like a nice funny guy he he's never struck me as toxic or or uh, bitter or mean and but but he does often make fun of people who say dumb shit and he shits on philosophy a lot too although i agree with some of his criticisms but yeah right but he He responded on on facebook here's the thing like if neil degrasse tyson wants rationalia to be taken seriously and make a difference i think that um the way to do it would have been to try to take more seriously the positions of people who are opposed to it because i think it was it was just too easy 
to say, I'm good at science, science solves it, and therefore everybody's wrong. Let's start our own virtual country. Yeah, we were taking him down. Like, I don't have an alternative proposal, but guess what? I'm not, I'm, I'm not making Facebook posts about starting a virtual country either. If I did, like, take me down. I don't know. Like, just, well, it's, just, it's just dumb. I, I, I'm so, just so here's how the Brendan, on that note, ends the email, right? Like, he says, the spirit of his proposal, not the details, is what matters. It's the spirit that we're objecting mm-hmm. to, right? And the spirit is yeah. uh, uh of it is all things that you agree with. We should be more evidence-based. We should have more experiments. We should base policy more on empirical data. We should fund more science. None of those things are actually, I think, what the spirit of the proposal uh, is. Because... No. And there, because or else, why would we... These are all things that we agree with. There was a reason that that's not... We made a point to not disagree with those things. Perhaps you could forego your own sense of superiority not possible and have the more and have the more interesting discussion about how rationalia could work and and maybe even invite dr tyson to join you so this is the point we don't think it could work right so a discussion (laughs) about and this is what we'll talk about in a sec but they're fundamentally like core reasons why something like rationalia couldn't work and this is what critics of rationalia made very clear and in fact Tyson knows the criticisms. He knows the criticisms that we're probably about to talk about more broadly and not in context of rationality anymore, but he chose to ignore them. That was another reason, I think, why we came off as a little more dismissive. Just, I expect more from that attempt. To end with, like, I think, on a positive note, all of the work that Neil deGrasse Tyson and people like him, Carl Sagan before him, I mean, fucking Mr. Wizard, Right. Like these are people who have brought science to the mainstream with their ability to explain clearly and inspire and get people excited about what science is. That right there, I think, is the way in which Neil deGrasse Tyson has made a contribution to making the world a more evidence based place. Yeah. Getting kids to see the wonder of the cosmos and the the amazing ability that the scientific method gives us to find out new true things about the world that that's good shit that's why i like i'll I'll still be starstruck if he talks to me even if i disagree about that dumb thing that he said so stop writing his dick fuck (laughs) (laughs) i'm bad (laughs) i I know i'm fixated on the analogy but same thing with richard dawkins like the best thing he ever did for science was write you know explanatory pieces and books like the selfish gene and the blind watchmaker and the extended phenotype like that's what gets people excited the 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 polemical stuff about science is awesome and everyone who disagrees with it is a stupid moronic fuck like that stuff actually doesn't not only that but the reason that you believe this stupid thing that i disagree with is because you're dumb at science right so, so but apparently God is on Neil deGrasse Tyson's side because there was just a huge thunderclap. And thunder, <laughs> maybe uh, there was applause. Yeah. Was, <laughs> um, uh, God yeah, saying, just, yeah, tell him. Yeah. Although, man, I think you're right that it could be applause because otherwise, like, how does God let you know that he's happy? Like, there's no sound. It's true. You know, it's true. that could. So. Lightning is God taking pictures of us. <laughs> All right, 
We're not straying too much from this topic, although we're going to stop we'll focusing relentlessly on Neil deGrasse Tyson and now just more broadly on the fact value gap. So um, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We'd like to take a little moment, as we usually do at the beginning of the second segment, to say thank you to everybody, um, even people who emailed us angrily. Honestly, I, I can't shake the fact that just the, just even the long ranting emails means that you care. So I appreciate it. Yeah. So Whoa. thank you all for your... Jesus Christ. Uh, this is it. Like, it's the end of the world here in Houston, so... For the record, it, I don't think it's coming through your mic at all, so we have, okay. we have no idea how much God is applauding. My dog is freaking out right now. He does not like this. Charlie. Omar doesn't give a shit. Uh, okay, sorry. Go ahead. Thank you to all those who, who have supported us. If you just want to communicate with us, email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet us at verybadwizards, at peas, at Tamler. We always have lively discussions on our Facebook page as well. You can rate us on iTunes or leave a review on iTunes. Thank you. We've gotten some nice reviews so far. I wanted to really quickly, um, just because it brought out the good nerd in me, um, we got an uh, You read email. that email. Yeah, yeah. We got an email from Neil Gradiznik. I hope that it's okay, Neil, to use your name. Hey, guys. I'm a longtime fan of the podcast, and since you encourage us listeners to write about feedback and suggestions, I decided to express my minor annoyance. You keep bringing up iTunes and how people should write a review about your podcast there. I'm sure you know the vast majority of iTunes users are Apple users, i.e. people that own and can afford to buy Apple products. To be fair, it runs on Windows as well, but I doubt a lot of people that are on Windows are using iTunes. There are numerous podcast apps out there for mobile and desktop, which are multi-platform and do not require you to buy an expensive Apple device to listen to your podcast. I'm a Linux user, and I get annoyed when all you do is mention iTunes reviews, but he left a smiley there. I'd just like to bring this to your attention. Apple users are a small minority of privileged people, mainly from the U.S., that can afford Apple products. So please don't forget about the rest of us that are outside the Apple ecosystem. I don't think we're forgetting about you, right? A way to to get the word out about the podcast is for people to rate us on iTunes. As far as I know, you can't rate us on Linux, can you? I mean, I'm not a coder. (laughs) I'm not Elliot. Yeah, so so Neil says, David, you're a fan of, of Linux hacker community, so I hope this message gets to you. I will say that um, I I take it to heart. Like I use Apple, and um, there's one thing I fucking hate Apple. Yeah, you hate Apple. I like it. Yeah. App, Apple runs the biggest podcast directory. Right. So um, so even podcast apps um, like the one I use, Overcast, which I highly recommend, is um, 
it, well, Overcast has its own directory, but most have used the iTunes directory. So it is unfortunately the most efficient way to to get um, our our podcast noticed. That said, I welcome any suggestions about where to go. That's but that's why we do Facebook. That's why we do Twitter. That's anything that uses RSS. Um, and if you lo- use Kali Linux and you have any insight about the Mr. Robot episode that we just saw, feel free to email us. I'm a big, I'm a fan of, of open source and any way that we can get to you. And I will say that I changed the format. Tamler doesn't even know this. I changed the format. Uh, I used to provide AAC and MP3 uh, files for people. I dropped AAC and now only use MP3 with chapter support for that very reason, so that everybody can get the chapters uh, um, in the MP3 format. And if you can rate us on Linux, then please do that too. But if you do have access to iTunes, even on your Windows or whatever device, and you can rate us, that also helps. Yeah, and we really, I think we said something about how we really appreciate the email, and if if you even thought to write us, then just do it because we appreciate it so much. And so we've got so many emails since we yeah. since we said that, and it's it's just so it's 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 wonderful. I love it. It's uh, we feed yeah, off just, it like uh, the the plant in Little Shop of Horrors, and and it's just really nice to hear from people from all over, like from every walk of life. Um, yes. You know, we have, we have, for a long time, we assumed that we had like, like primarily philosophy and psychology grad students and we've been disabused of that. Yeah. In fact, um, I think they've all left us now that they've become more sophisticated in their <laughs> fields. If you want to support us substantively, you can go to the support page. You can go to uh, Amazon and just click through and shop on Amazon, but you can also go to patreon.com slash very bad wizards. And support us there. Thank you to all our Patreon supporters. I think we're up to like 175 patrons or something like that. And that's just that's just awesome. If you're any kind of Patreon supporter, you will get a monthly newsletter, which will be coming out or will have just come out for, for this month with our recommendations. At a certain level, I think it's $2, you get um, Dave's volume of beats, which he will update yep, at a second volume point. is 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 coming out soon i have the track list i'm actually working on a friend to do the art and then for our five dollar and up listeners right now uh, i wanted to call attention on our patreon page if you are a supporter you can nominate topics for an episode and then we will select some finalists from those nominations and then we will allow the $5 and up listeners to choose the topic, and we'll probably do that for episode 101 or 102. So for all of our Patreon users who are listening to this, please go and suggest a topic on that page so that we have a good list to select the finalists for and a good list for the the $5 and up listeners to select the episode. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so... The naturalistic fallacy, the is-ought gap, there are values and there are facts, and there's a gap between those things that some people think you can bridge, many people think you can't bridge, but 
if you want to bridge it, it's it's something that takes a good amount of philosophical work. And I think in a lot of our criticisms of people like Sam Harris and people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, it's that they don't mind the gap, right? They don't respect the gap and take it seriously enough. Now, Sam Harris, to his credit, does address this in his book, The Moral Landscape, I think unsuccessfully, but he does try to address it. But let's just go through the history. Let's start with David Hume, because um, this whole idea of you can't derive an ought from an is comes from this quote that Hume had in uh, Treatise of Human Nature. I think it was in that and not the inquiries. I'm actually not sure about that. And in fact, the idea that you can't derive an ought from an is is often referred to as Hume's Law or Hume's Guillotine. So here's the quote. He says, In every system of morality which I have hitherto met with, I have always remarked that the author proceeds for some time in the ordinary way of reasoning, premises, conclusion, and establishes the being of God or makes observations concerning human affairs, when all of a sudden I am surprised to find that instead of the usual copulations of propositions, <laughs> I like that, the, instead of the usual copulations of, propu- of propositions, <laughs> is and is not, I meet with no proposition that is not connected with an ought or an ought not. The change is imperceptible, but is, however, of the last consequence. For as this ought or ought not expresses some new relation or affirmation, tis necessary that it should be observed and explained, and that at the same time a reason should be given for what seems altogether inconceivable, how this relation can be a deduction from others which are entirely different from it. But as authors do not commonly use this precaution, I shall presume to recommend it to the readers and am persuaded that this small attention would subvert all the vulgar systems of morality and let us see that the distinction of vice and virtue is not founded merely on the relations of objects nor is perceived by reason. Okay, what's Hume saying there? Essentially he's saying, look, you have these arguments and they start out with just a bunch of is statements about the world. The world is like this. And then all of a sudden it moves in the conclusions to here's what we ought to do. And what Hume is pointing out is, wait a minute, that doesn't follow logically, right? You have all these X is Y, P is Q, and all of a sudden you're, 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 we ought to X or we ought to, to P or whatever, not we ought to P or we ought to poo. Uh, it, not only does it not follow validly, like there's no logical connection, but it's like inconceivable, according to Hume, and I agree with him, how it could follow logically, right? You have to start out with, in your premises, an ought premise, like some general ought principle, a normative principle, that then when combined with all the is premises, the factual premises, that will enable you to draw a conclusion that tells us what we ought to do. But without that, you're committing what is or what appears to be a logical fallacy. Right, right. For all the philosophers out there, we, like it's clear that there's a discussion about whether it's a logical fallacy or not. But I, but let's side right. step or it's back. an invalid um, inference. It's just, right. I often have to bring this up to my undergraduates because it's it seems like a step that comes easy, like appeals to to what is natural, seem to come easy to people. And and the point is that no, there is this step there, 
that you can dis- you can say all of the facts of the world, all of them, and like there is nothing that you can infer about values from just stating the facts like that. Right. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair. Right. Without at least some sort of implicit normative principle that that you subscribe to. Right. Right. So you could say, I think all good things have to be natural things. If you want to defend that, then then fine. But that you can easily defeat that. Right. Like so then, you know, and this is part of the problem with some of these arguments is that a lot of these things are implicit. So Hume is pointing out rightly, I think, that you can't just slip into conclusions about what we ought to do when all you've been giving is these factual premises, uh, premises about what is the case. You have to at least acknowledge that you're assuming some sort of general principle, uh, normative principle, an ought principle. The term naturalistic fallacy, though, doesn't come until like almost 200 years later with G. Moore, I guess the early 1900s. So Moore... He was a realist, and, and that part of his view doesn't work, uh, a realist and a non-naturalist. So he thought that goodness had to be this kind of simple, non-natural property. It couldn't be reduced in terms of any natural properties. It couldn't be defined in terms of any natural properties. So, for example, utilitarians tried to define good in terms of what produces the most pleasure or the most happiness. Social Darwinists tried to define good in terms of what would increase our reproductive fitness, right? And and Moore is writing uh, just after the social Darwinists had their day. And you could try to define good in terms of any natural property. Those were just the the leading ones at the time. But you could define goodness in like having the most sex and drugs, like the people take the most drugs, have the most sex, right? Like hippies or something, define it that way. What Moore says is, no, you can't do this. He developed something to show this called the open question argument. This is a fairly famous argument in metaethics. This is what the argument says. It says, look, it's like a challenge. Try to define good in any kind of naturalistic way. Give me a definition. Say it's uh, maximizing happiness, right? And Moore says... When you say maximizing happiness is good, you're not just saying maximizing happiness is maximizing happiness. You're not just stating a tautology, right? You're making uh, a substantive claim. You're saying this is what's good, maximizing happiness. Like that's an inform that would inform people about the nature of what's good. So they they can't be defined in terms of each other. Right. Um, another way to think of it is like, it wouldn't be an open question if I said, look, I know my brother David is an unmarried man, but is he a bachelor? Well, right. yeah, right? Because that's how you define bachelor, as an unmarried man. But now when you think, I know this policy will maximize total happiness, but is that a good policy? That is an open question. What if the policy severely limited individual freedom or made like a minority of people suffer at the expense of sort of minimal gains of the majority, right? For the, of happiness. It's just it's right. still an open question and that just and and more thought that no matter what you offered him as a definition, it will always be an open question whether that thing is is good. There's there's a a, a different objection where you say, well, like what we were saying about, well, you have to define good. And sometimes people who claim that 
maximizing good is is what ought to be done and who don't offer a definition of what is good, then it's just unclear. But that's but And that was more. He was actually a <clears throat> consequentialist. Right. I mean a weird sort of consequentialist though, because he thought he just essentially defined ought as what will maximize the good, but he also thought that you couldn't define what good was. Right. You know, he, he was one of these intuitionists that thought we just have this way of perceiving the good. You know it when you see it. Yeah. It's an, um, like like porn. <laughs> erect penises. Um. <laughs> There's no way to know what a der- erect penis is until you see. Everybody remembers that the, you know, when you see it was the famous argument for for <laughs> how to define obscenity. But yeah. then they realized that that didn't work. And they, they just said the presence of an erect penis. <laughs> that was the definition they landed on. I know that that is an erect penis, but is that an obscenity, right? It's still an open question. <laughs> what if my, it's Michael Fassbender's penis, right? Um, By the way, this is the most analytic philosophy I've ever heard you do. <laughs> you know, like, that's I, I can do that. I'm like one of those athletes just so transcendent, but they can sort of play a more traditional style of play. You're right. You're like Picasso when you, he drew the bull with simple lines. It didn't yeah. mean that he couldn't draw a like super photorealistic one. Just, yeah. <laughs> that, that, no, I think that's actually the best analogy of what I am <laughs> to philosophy, like a Picasso. It's just that you draw bullshit. <laughs> so... There are ways to nitpick against this, too, like with Hume. Um, and in fact, like better ways than what you could do against Hume. But one thing I think you could say, uh, and that people have objected, is that um, naturalists or utilitarians or whoever, um, they're not trying to give a definition of good exactly. They're just trying to give this informative claim about what natural things are always good. And so saying that they're not it's not a tautology or it's it's not definitional, you know, uh, the, the, the big example that people trot out is you say water is H2O. Right. And that's informative. That actually tells you something about water. Um, it's not like saying water is water. You're actually right. saying water is this natural property of these hydrogen and uh, oxygen uh, atoms. But uh, that doesn't mean that water can't be defined in terms of those properties or that it's you can't say that water is h2o just because those two things aren't analytic right um fine right that's true but i don't think it helps naturalists i don't think it helps utilitarians because it'll still be an open question whatever you it's not like water is h2o or you can run experiments or you can it's always going to be an open question whatever definition of good you offer or whatever claim about the good you offer it'll still be an open question it'll still be open to disagreement and and that disagreement fundamentally will be not subject to empirical investigation right I guess one question is, if we agree this is an error, which I, I mean, I find pretty compelling, that why is it that people seem to so easily slip into it? Yeah. Um, and why is it so it, tempting to try to it's so, well, yeah, why is it so tempting? Gap. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so there's a few examples. Um, I mentioned evolutionary, evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology. And there was famously this case of, of these evolutionary biologists who wrote, a book on on rape where they were arguing that rape could have been selected as a strategy could have been selected for. And now 
the truth or falsity of that particular claim and even the choice to write that book like i whatever but what what seems like the first thing that pops into people's mind um when even hearing something like that argument is that it is a defense a moral defense of rape right and it is it's, it's like a justify it, it it justifies rape right exactly and and i and it's a it's a i think a fairly complex set of tacit or implicit arguments that are going on in their head which is you know there is something about natural things that help survival that must be good and that we should do because maybe just because there are a lot of those things that we would agree are good escaping predators seems like what i would immediately call good because it helps me live and living is a good thing and i want to live right. and then somehow we get the evolutionary arguments twisted into sort of psychological arguments and we say well therefore if somebody's raping because they want to procreate then then you know something something along those lines i think there's a couple dynamics at play and people make or people having that worry one of it is a kind of fear of biological determinism. So it's not necessarily that it's good, but you're saying that you can't blame that the you rapist. can't blame them. Yeah, you yeah, know? you're right. That's probably more of it. So I think um, that's part of it. Another example, and it's one that I think in some ways we had this debate on our famous f- battle over gender and toys and you know, there's this huge debate over whether there are gender differences, your biologically programmed or influenced preferences towards. Again, I think the worry is that if there are, and this is why this research is so controversial, then that might justify certain inequalities or differences in society. Right. Um, to me, that issue really depends on. So let's say there are biological differences in terms of you know that bio, that that your that your sex actually influences some of the activities that you'll prefer some of the things that you'll like i think that's perfectly fine unless those things have some sort of additional feature like but that's a separate issue but yeah so there is that style of argument that i've often thought about um which is one way in which people make this bridge which is sort of a goodness of fit so let's take dogs as an example we you know we breed dogs certain kinds of dogs um to do certain things so right if uh if you know if you know anything about dogs you know certain kinds of dogs love to herd yeah um and there's a way in which you would be increasing their happiness if you simply allowed them the environment in which they could unleash their herding instincts. And when you don't allow that, then they right. are might be less happy at some at some basic level. And you if you then additionally argue that it is good to have happy dogs versus unhappy dogs, then there is where you use you could use the empirical is as input into It's just like, here's how you know you're going to have a happy, flourishing dog is if you get their environment to be close to the kind of environment that they were bred to do what they do. This is sort of the Aristotelian approach to bridging the gap is saying, look, what are humans meant to do? Because that's what you have with dogs. They were actually bred for specific functions, like some to sniff some to chase birds out, some to herd, right? And right. some to fucking fight. <laughs> yeah, some to fight. Again, <laughs> you're not necessarily like the ones that like like Omar, my dog who's bred to fight, he's not happy when he fights. Yeah, so you don't know. it sort you of don't depends. Know. I mean, you have no idea. He doesn't There's... seem happy. 
seems, <laughs> he seems crazy, like in the dog fights that I bring him to. <laughs> now, to be fair, I, I I drug him. Like I like he's on a lot of drugs, you know. And then my dog Charlie, who's a hound, just love like when he gets out. But he he loves to do what he's kind of bred. I mean, neither of them are fully bred to do anything because they're like serious he's he's definitely got a ton of hound in him and he loves being around interesting things to smell right and but again i think it just it it it, we don't have that like a we we didn't evolve to be happy we evolved to um reproduce and survive that's like happy our happiness was not like there's no teleology involved with our happiness like it could it it Probably is a byproduct. But if I wanted to, if I wanted to try to bridge this gap, a like I still think you know that's going to be at best you're going to get a kind of pluralism, a fairly restricted pluralism, and I would sort of look for the kinds of conditions where human beings tend to, yeah. for lack of a better word, flourish, knowing that there's still going to be disagreement on the margins and maybe you know pretty close in, but there'll be some core things that. You know, it might be just true about us as creatures that these are the conditions where we're, in general, we're having the best sorts of lives by our own lights or something like that. Right. You know, and and but this is actually the part where it's easy to get hand wavy, and I think that this is the part where, um, where I'm comfortable saying a lot of people in the social and behavioral sciences might not give too much thought to to exactly what ought to be maximized and how yeah. right so it's it's very easy to say like we should we should create environments that make human beings happy that sounds like so uncontroversial that you'd be a dumbass to disagree with it right. but there is so much involved in that claim um not only defining what is happy but also what the you know maximizing function ought to be so are you talking about making most humans happy? So what if making most human beings have higher levels of pleasure and lower levels of pain involves violating the rights of a few people? And there's where you get super hand wavy, I think, that they are failing to to realize that they're sneaking in a lot of a lot of things that are more than just maximizing happiness like like Brave New World is it's a great philosophical example of utilitarianism put into action. Like I think it's plausible, especially a, a sort of Benthamite kind of utilitarianism mm-hmm. like here is a world where they've really minimized the amount of suffering in the world and they've uh, increased the amount of pleasure. I mean, that's Soma. I have yeah. always said I would love <laughs> to get my hands on and <laughs> If if that is your goal, if you've just decided, as they did in Brave New World, that these this is our goal, then then rationalia becomes a possibility because now if you if those good like if that's at the outset your goal, then it really is all evidence and all facts in terms of how best to achieve that goal. But it is definitely an open question whether Brave New World is the best society or whether it's even a good society, right? Right. Because of the restrictions on freedom, the restrictions on uh, things like art. You might say, so, I mean, there there are two problems. Like, one, 
even if you accept that definition of sort of the benthamite increase of pleasure, do you really mean just for the average, like, or most, the majority of the people, the average person? And are you willing to, to sacrifice, right. you know, to, so to that, break a few eggs? So that's what you have. You have to say that. And at an individual level, right? What obligations do we have? How much are we allowed to favor our family's welfare over the welfare of strangers, right? Yeah. Like how much if I if I can do something that will, you know, take my daughter to see in the heights, um, that's like when that money maybe could go towards saving a life. Like, am I am I permitted to do that? I mean, yeah, we know that it's not going to probably maximize the amount of happiness in the world, but it's definitely an open question whether uh, you're still allowed to do that. And even as a society, right? Like, there's like take the question of foreign aid. There's no way to sort of run an empirical test. That will settle the question of how much a society owes to the world at large. Right. right? Here's where I really like I mean, this is at the heart of why I think that it is irresponsible to just say like, no, obviously we want policies that are good for society. Like there is so much there that needs to, to be settled both empirically and in terms of the values of what you place on what is good, whether the unit of good is is the average, the country, the, you know, the world. All of that, and so and the animals. It, do animals get do count? do animals yeah. count? And and Neil deGrasse Tyson actually has gotten flack for just sort of sidestepping that issue. Like much like you, he just says, "No, I like to eat meat." So forget. Like let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't say that. <laughs> well, you do like to eat meat. This is why I can't stomach the criticism that that don't be so hard on him it was just it's not really a constitution he's not really trying to you know he was just trying to put some stuff down on paper no like that actually is exactly what you need to do or else it's just an exercise in whatever well then it's just not saying anything it's not saying anything like it's not saying anything if if his point is we should take evidence more into account when crafting policy that's not controversial anybody yeah. would, there's like even your hardest core like obama birther still thinks like if you just ask them flat out should you take evidence into account they're going to say yes and and importantly when when oftentimes the answer for for why any particular policy ought to be given it is that people are happier um, if we in, if we endorse this policy or if we implement this policy, right. because and what you find is that there just is a disagreement about what it means. <laughs> like sometimes there's an empirical disagreement, and sometimes both sides actually have a disagreement about the value of something. So, like it, conservatives, like who are super religious, just do believe that the world would be a better place if there wasn't abortion. Like right. that is just to them like an empirical claim, much like Sam claims. Like it is the world just is a better place is when we don't empiri- lie. I don't know if it's an empirical claim. It's it's a value claim. It's a, yeah yeah value it's a value. Claim. You could imagine that it's an, like that you you could have an empirical question and then um but but then you can retreat as they often do and I think as a conservative and a liberal both retreat to the value claim that it's not, sometimes unclear to me whether they mean empirical or value. But um, but you find the similar things where you have a constrained definition of pleasure, say, from a from somebody who claims to be utilitarian and they expand this view to mean anything like a society in which we respect our own families and don't lie to each other, even when it maximizes overall benefit is just going to be a better society. 
And that all of a sudden is sneaking in all kinds of other things. And I think, I think that it's disingenuous because they think they're making an empirical claim and they're pretending like they're making an empirical claim, but really they're defending a core value. Right. And, and actually, I think the abortion case is interesting because I was thinking as you said that, right, how could it be an empirical claim that it's a better world if there are no abortions? It's not like there is – I can't think of an like a test, a, a scientific study that you could do to test for the – like is it a better world – uh, I think it is a value. Now it's fine. Like I, I think they're, they're you know, you, you're totally allowed to make a value judgment about abortion. I think w- the the facts matter, yeah. but they're not going to settle that very tough issue. That's but, why like, it, that's it's exactly parallel to saying a world in which you're maximizing happiness is a better world. It's there's yeah. no, it's 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 if the former isn't an empirical claim, the latter isn't either for the same reasons. Right. And I thought that it became it it becomes clear when you say, um, what is it that makes us want to like that would require us to maximize good for all of humanity rather than just maximize good for oneself? Yeah. Like that seems to me like the most uncontroversial of all claims. Like if there is any value that people can agree on, it's that, you know, just not contrary to reason to prefer the destruction of the world to the to the scratching of my little finger. Right. Like that. That's uh, a David Hume quote. Very that's nice a David. That that's a David. Thank you. Like thank verbatim, you. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the original Scottish. Um, yeah. Just the jump from caring about your own happiness to caring about the happiness of all human beings or even all Americans or like that is a value that seems intuitive enough, but is one that clearly isn't an empirically defended value. It is simply a stated value that is it's such the core of morality that it's hard to see that you would have to defend it. Yeah. Um, which, as evidenced by all the people who, who emailed us. How could you not agree that that would that's so obvious? Another reason it's tempting to try to slide over that gap and not draw attention to it or to actively deny its existence is that people worry that it's going to enable us to rationalize bad behavior, or at least singer would like it to be just true, rationally true, that we ought to minimize suffering and increase the greatest happiness, then at least we would know when we're not doing it that we're doing the wrong thing, right? At least we would know that and then we'll – so that we're more motivated to to try to do the right thing. But if it now becomes an open question whether that is even something that is – what we're obligated to do or what the right thing to do is, then it's like we have even less incentive, maybe. I guess this is the thinking. Now, I don't know. I don't buy this, but I think that might be also behind the worry. You know, it all goes back to if there's no God, then everything's permitted. It's like the worry is that it's going to be moral anarchy unless we just just say that this is what's right, like with God, with with utilitarianism, with whatever. Yeah, and and this is why I think Singer kind of avoids the metaethical question, and I don't blame him at all. Like, I actually think maybe the thinking is we have a pretty good shot of getting people to to capture the intuition based on their other beliefs that this is a, a good thing. Um, but he doesn't have to say that this is an empirically, you know, this is it, this is just well, the value that he starts. He with. says it's rational. He, he yeah, thinks he says it's, it's a rational trip like that. Should get you at least a little mini, little mini obscenity, right? <laughs> but it's not 
it's not it's right. Not it's, right. Yeah. Um, so, so, and, and so, okay. So this gets us to the question of like, what I think, what I think that I, I mentioned before is at the core, a, a disingenuous move, or at least one that's maybe sincere, but wrong, which is to not realize or admit that, um, there are real differences in values that are not open to scientific investigation that are at the heart of many disagreements about policy. And yeah. that's why I think that that just sort of re-upping on like people are stupid because they don't like science and it's so obvious that science will answer the questions is is wrong. Um, and and I've before used and I've talked to you about this and I often use this as an example when I give talks. Um and I, what I think is a very illustrative example of a case in which there is a, mis, a, a, a disconnect between what people think they disagree about and what they actually disagree about. And so, um, yeah, that's this, yeah. yeah. So th- this conversation, I, I started thinking about this based on a conversation I had with a friend a long time ago. Um, that went to college with me. Now I went to Seventh Amateurs College where we weren't allowed to um, have girls in the boys' dorm and vice versa. Um, premarital sex is technically forbidden, and I don't even know why I have to say technically. It's like not <laughs> you're not supposed to do it. And here's what would happen: um, the um, if you've ever lived in a dorm, uh, you know that sometimes like corporations put together these little care packages, these little boxes of products, sample products like, you know, razors and shampoo and shit like that. Yeah. And they give them away for free. Our school would go in and take out the condoms from every little box and then give them to us. Right. So it was they like take out North the Korea. Adam and Eve catalog. Yeah. I, I didn't even know that they had that. Yeah. And so uh, years later, I was talking to a friend of mine and she was saying how stupid this was. Um, because we were gonna, she, you know, we were gonna have sex anyway. And she was basically mounting a harm reduction argument and and saying, you know, our school was dumb. Now I agree that it's dumb because I actually think that preventing pregnancy and uh, STIs is a more important thing than preventing people from having sex. But I, that's a I value, ha- right? I couldn't help but think though that she was failing to appreciate that. If you believe that something is morally wrong, then handing out like like premarital sex, handing out condoms seems pretty fucking wrong. And so the the way that I was trying to get her to understand this, because it was, again, this line of like harm reduction is so obviously the right thing to do. If we just do the studies, we'll see that, like, you know, people get less HIV if we give out clean needles. So I came up with some examples rhetorically. We even ran some studies on this, but the, the ones the ones that I was giving her was uh, were along the lines of like imagine that there is a community in where there, in which there's a lot of um, drive by shootings by gang members. What you know, one of the problems with drive by shootings is that is that innocent people die, right? Because you can't possibly shoot a gun sideways through a moving right. car and like hit the. So imagine that that the police agree that 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 this is a bad thing, and but but they say you know gangs. Just by the nature of like what they do, they're going to commit violent acts against each other. So the least we could do is bring gang members in and give them target practice training, teach them exactly how to shoot well, like out of moving vehicles or whatever, so that when they do shoot at people, few you know fewer innocents die, 
And suppose that you implement that policy and sure enough, like the number of innocent deaths goes down. Like you, you don't even need to get that deep into the explanation, usually without like, at least with non-philosophers, without getting some abhorrence, like <laughs> yeah. know, some looks of just complete, you know, there's, there's a few other examples that I, I would give, like um, teaching people how to hit their spouses in areas of the body that wouldn't cause permanent damage right. and like shit like that. And uh, it may be the most important one, asking, asking child molesters to cut down the number of victims by half by instituting like sort of a public ad campaign to like just molest, like if you usually molest 10 kids a year, try to cut that number down to five. Yeah. Like these are all policies that by people like Neil deGrasse Tyson's view, like you could just do a test and say like, look, actually fewer kids get molested when we start that public ad campaign than um, kids who don't. And then if we don't, therefore it's a good policy but what you find is that at least um, among most people that i talk to who are fairly liberal and who would endorse harm reduction is that they think that you're an asshole for first of all saying it but it illustrates that the disagreement is that like i think it's wrong to molest kids and i don't care whether or not there is a policy that would reduce it if it sounds like it's encouraging any kind of molestation or gang. Right. And you could right. argue over that. I mean, and this is why I think the open question argument is best thought of as open to disagreement. Like, I actually think, although those examples are deliberately chosen to be kind of provocative and shocking, like, yeah. you also have to remember there's going to be kids out there that aren't going to get molested because of this policy. And if you don't allow the policy, those kids are, you know, there's going to be kids that do get molested because yeah. you were against the policy. Now, yep. that's, you know, like, this is one of those trade-off things where, you, that's the biting the bullet. Yeah, that's the biting <laughs> yeah. the bullet. And like, you know, there, it's just not which of those things you're comfortable with is not something that is that's just a, a, a complete value judgment. Like there's no there's no further evidence, empirical evidence that will that will decide that issue. And I, I think abortion is like this, too. I mean, there's going to be questions about its effects, its emotional effects on the mother it, whether the fetus feels pain, but none, you, yeah. none of those things would settle for the person no. whether that they are pro-choice or pro-life. It's so much more fundamental than that. And, you know, that's a good... If we had Neil deGrasse Tyson come on, I would ask him about that. You know, like, how is rationalia going to treat an issue like abortion? Yeah, are you going to randomly assign states to be to to ban abortion and then somehow measure something? And and I think that that most people who no, I, yeah. I know. I mean, what what answer would settle it, right? right? And, and I think that in in the case of the abortion debate, that's why it it so often comes down to discussion of rights and rights just are not <laughs> like that. Once you start talking about rights, then you've you have realized I don't care about whether or not this brings about greater happiness. I now care fundamentally about, right, like our resistance to a utopian future in which no one has basic freedoms is one where like a fuck happiness, I care about rights. Yeah. Right? I would rather be miserable and be allowed to f have the freedom of, of thinking my own thoughts. So look, you could, you could argue, like you could take a step back and say, well, I think a world in which people are allowed those rights will be a better world eventually. You know, you then, might then right, I think you're doing yeah. meant. You might be right, but I think that you're being disingenuous. I Completely. think that, but I think that the reason people don't want to do that 
is because, and this maybe can get us into another question that I was going to ask you, which is once you admit that you have sort of non-empirically or scientifically grounded values on which you're basing some of these decisions, you are left with like the very thing that the open question is, is asking you to do is realize that there is some other way in which you have to derive values and not having sort of a set of objective, measurable empirical facts to, to, to do this seems daunting and, and very hard to defend. Yeah. Like this is the, the part of more that's, I think just like so laughably implausible that it's, you know, it's no, it's like no less implausible than Tyson's thing. Right. Like he just thinks that goodness is this property that we intuit. He really doesn't, allow for a disagreement and i you know i'm not a more scholar so i I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, i i won't say this too strongly but but the fact is that people intuit goodness in all sorts of different ways and <laughs> right that you know that's not going to just saying this is something that we intuit or saying something that this is something we... You were accused of, of of this in a recent email, weren't you? Or like a Facebook post. Well, <laughs> like, yeah. Just endorsing. <laughs> but I think that they were coming at me from the other direction, which is that I'm this radical subjectivist that thinks like, if it feels good, just do it. What the hell? I mean, to know? be fair, that's, that's how you behave. But <laughs> yeah. maybe not what you endorse. <laughs> I know. I, I still think it's wrong. Um, so... <laughs> You know, like, I think, I mean, those are the two extremes. You're going to be some sort of hardcore realist with no justification for your realism on the one side, or you're going to be this radical subjectivist who really doesn't think that you, that, that any sort of argument, rational argument or evidence will matter, that you just do what you feel like. And obviously to me, and, and it really is obvious to me, although not to a lot of other people, the truth is somewhere in between. It's somewhere pretty far from both extremes. You know, there's there once you just recognize that there are value judgments and core disagreements, there's still so much work you can do to try to come to some sort of consensus about policies that people agree on and then agree to dislike with so many other value judgments agree to disagree when uh when you get to those core sort this is not something we're going to settle but let's figure out what we can settle you know right and so this and and this to me is the realization that is not present in in the way a lot of people discuss this like if in this case neil degrasse tyson where it is it and this is what i was talking about sort of not even accepting that the level of disagreement is mismatched right where where it it really is a core conflict of values that needs to be discussed at that level yeah and to just say as neil degrasse i think says in a pretty glib fashion like you know what science does like you do the study you find the answer and then you move on quickly right, right? if it really were that easy then Essentially, we would all be fucking idiots for not having done this a long time ago. But it's not as hopefully illustrated by all the all of the like very, very uncomfortable conclusions that a true utilitarian has to come to, for instance. Right. Like people like Peter Singer bite the bullet on some of these things. And 
if you're going to defend that sort of a view, like, cause I, you know, in this case, I'm not, I'm not defending some sort of, re, you know, realism about values or some rights-based theory. I'm not even saying it, it would be wrong to be a, just a Benthamite utilitarian and then measure happiness. All I'm saying is that you have to at least admit that if that is what you are endorsing, it leads to some pretty uncomfortable conclusions. Yeah. That <laughs> Which Singer, to his credit, to his embraces. Credit. Like, that's yeah. why he's so controversial. Like, yes, give parents the choice of killing their severely disabled infant because yeah. that money that it will cost to give them even a reasonably, uh, a life of, of just a reasonable amount of suffering it, to adulthood is, is so high you could do so much good with it. And I really think it actually follows from his theory that they shouldn't be allowed to. But and, but right. he goes pretty far. He goes yeah. farther than most consequentialists in terms of not just accepting that there are some counterintuitive or uncomfortable implications, but actually endorsing those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, yeah. he, you know, he's, if, he's consistent, if nothing, if, <laughs> if nothing else. Like, I admire, it's probably the exact thing that you don't like. Um, but, but that I like, that, even if I disagree with Singer's utilitarianism, I really like like his his consistency in his position. Well, he's not disingenuous, <laughs> like so. That, no, so he's I not appreciate at all. That. Yeah, exactly. And but but what is interesting about Singer, and this sort of came up in my interview with him in a very bad wizard second edition book. Um, Which is available for purchase now. Um, he, he started out as a Humean and tried to defend his consequentialism and utilitarianism from that perspective, like recognizing that ultimately this comes down to our value judgments and our emotion-based judgments. And then, thanks to frickin' Parfit and 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 Sidgwick became convinced that you could, you know, reason your way towards the conclusion that he <laughs> once thought was just... But again, I don't think this is disingenuous. Like, I think he really does. But what's interesting sociologically about that is he feels so strongly about his view that he was uncomfortable with it being in any way relying on subjective endorsement. Yeah. Um, and so... I think this is the one part of his philosophy that actually does that really doesn't work so that he could be consistent and kind of comfortable. He, he made this meta ethical leap. Um, yeah. But it's obviously at a much it's, it is at a much higher level than other people. Yeah. Have tried to do. I mean, he does he, recognize yeah. the problem. I feel for his sort of the, 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 the need like I'm, I'm not a philosopher, and I'm glad that I'm not because I wouldn't have a positive answer to, to what you know how, how to hang my ethical views meta ethically. Like it's a, it's such a difficult problem. I can see sort of, um, uh, almost embarrassment at not having something to hang my consequentialism on, or let alone my like desire for Kantian objective realism or whatever the fuck I believe. <laughs> um, Everyone's just respecting each other as ends. <laughs> so okay, okay so jerking off all right <laughs> should we wrap this up yeah yeah let's wrap it up and i i want to say really quickly though like here's what is i don't know what the right way to divide up the number of questions about policy into those things that could be empirically answered and those that couldn't it could be that some there's like five things that are all about values and not about it couldn't be answered empirically and 10 million things that could be answered empirically that's fine but everything like, can be informed empirically everything can be informed empirically yeah. and like and 
I am like so on that side. Yeah. I just don't think that that's what most of the most of the critical disagreement is about at all. I think that the resistance to science on the part of some conservatives may actually be a response to people claiming that they're dumb to think what they do because they're not being scientific. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how much I agree with that. I think there are a lot of policy debates that really are disagreement in how you interpret the facts. Like, I think healthcare is one of those. I know there are some really hardcore libertarians who think that the government shouldn't impose. But really what that's about is, you know, will this mean higher costs? Will this mean that people don't have access to the highest quality care? You know, like, I, I, I do think that like that it, that debate is over fact. I think a lot a, of the climate science stuff is over fact, maybe like Yeah, it's really hard to tease apart how much is sort of motivated reasoning P- people say that it's about facts when they really don't mean that it's like it's hard. it's hard. I I don't know. I'm I'm certainly like open to to the possibility that you're right. Like we had a dis- bit of a discussion about how much of the the, the death penalty is about the facts of the matter. And I was saying that I actually think that even if you showed that it was yeah. a clear, yeah, if it was a clear deterrent, I, that evidence wouldn't sway people. Who are opposed um, to the death penalty. Who are opposed to the death penalty. Yeah. yeah. They would just reject the, the numbers. Like, they would just say, like, I don't believe the numbers. But even if it was uncontroversial. And people who are pro-death penalty aren't relying on the claim that it is a deterrent either. Right. Like, so, yeah. no, I think, so you have the death penalty, you have abortion, you have guns, I think. Like, some of those issues, I think, it's, again, they can all be informed by empirical evidence, but empirical evidence won't settle those, yeah. those kinds and, of issues. And people slip back and forth into sort of like, you know, if, you be, if people seem to believe that something is a fundamental right, yeah. They seem to sort of like use empirical arguments because they, you know, they think that will help their case. But, but I don't, you know, but I don't know what's driving what. Yeah, but really, what they're leaning on is the rights in terms of uh, yeah. what they're not willing to give up, and I think that's okay. You know, that's yeah. the world, that's life, that's that we have these value disagreements, and part of the. I think you could look at it as depressing, but it's also sort of. The fun of the world. It's the what's interesting about the world is that we don't all agree about everything, and that there's going to, like we need to negotiate. We need to, the, and, like, yeah, we need to learn what we, and we need to even figure out what we really think about stuff. Like all that stuff, I think you can look at as part of a just a learning, growing process that is very much reflective of the human condition. Ooh. Yeah, and I think that it part of like it is taking seriously the possibility that other people like might have a core disagreement. That's the only way really I think to to make progress because then you can enter a negotiation about values. Yeah. Because if if you ignore that then it just ends up being like a you're too dumb to see the obviousness of of these numbers and I think right like you know, one take, and I'll make the last thing, one take on our sort of trashing Neil deGrasse's rationalia was um, like, oh, you know, just because he doesn't like philosophy, like we're trying to defend the value of philosophy. And that's the furthest from yeah. what I'm trying to do here. You could say like what most of philosophers even argue about in ethics is dumb, but there is real value in at least clarifying what it is we're really disagreeing about because we're all 
we're, we'll never make progress uh, unless it's just by might. Yeah. And one side wins. And, if, and in fact, I think, you know, empirically speaking, when you do recognize that there is this core disagreement in value and you're having this disagreement, those are actually the productive discussions. Like yeah. you're just trying to clarify exactly what it is that you both believe. You're not just calling one person an idiot or evil or immoral. You know, again, I, John Haidt, this was sort of his point towards the yeah, beginning yeah. of his career, which is that people are motivated by values, and we have to recognize that if we're going to have productive disagreement and not just right. backtrack into our comfortable corners where yeah, everybody exactly. And when you when you're having those disagreements and you can't just do a, a, a spreadsheet. Um, then it really becomes important to respect the views of somebody else in order to make any progress. Like, because like as hard as it is, I've come to respect some of your abhorrent values, or at least that you have them. Like you're Um, a Lakers fan. (laughs) That's what it turns out to be. You know, Um, I've decided, you know, I've actually pondered becoming a hardcore Yankees fan, which would require me to start liking baseball. Right. Just to piss and me off, you would do this? Just to piss you off, yeah. 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 Be worth you want to piss me off, I would, more than that, it's become a really <laughs> hardcore, like, Roger Goodell fan. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean... That would be kind of impossible, though. He's just... He's, I, I guess you just don't like the facts of the, of the matter. In the, <laughs> yeah. That's one <laughs> where the enemy. facts do settle the issue, actually. <laughs> you're an enemy of, inflate, of inflation science. Uh, I'm an enemy of the idea. Well, no, I'm a friend of the ideal gas law. But uh, so next time we might have your boy, some yeah. journalist. Yeah, we might have science we have journalist. we might have uh, Matt Hudson, yeah. um, who is a science writer. In time, we will we will have eventually, but it probably will be for episode 99 to talk about um, the science science journalism writing and everything involved in that. So. Um, so actually, we might as well put out a, a a request for if you've ever wanted to ask somebody whose profession it is to write about science, especially I think in light yeah. of all of like the crap that that's going on with um with our difficulties with lots of yeah, many, in many scientific fields, just psychology just gets shit on by people like you over and over. It's fine. Um. So yeah, that will be episode ninety nine, and then we'll yeah, have our hundredth episode. Send in your questions. Um, and if you are a Patreon subscriber. Go leave some suggested topics um, on that post. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber, consider being one. All right, thanks. We'll see you next time.